Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's just before dawn on Friday the 3rd of February 1928 in Omeo, and a photographer from Melbourne's Herald is out for a scoop that'll please his boss. Ronald Jeeves Griggs, yesterday charged with the poisoning murder of his wife Ethel, is about to be taken from the town's log cabin lockup and driven to sale to keep him safe. Constable Keith McMillan, Omeo's copper, reportedly fears the accused will be lynched by vigilantes if he stays in town much longer. An exclusive snap of Ronald Griggs. That's what the Herald's hands-on managing editor, Keith Murdoch, wants his photographer to bring back to Melbourne. Mr Murdoch, he's a man who knows the value of what he calls a good murder. Six years ago, he made his reputation and saw his newspaper's circulation skyrocket by beating the drum for an early arrest in the Alma Turchki Gun Alley murder case. Once an arrest was made, the Herald then prejudiced accused Colin Ross's right to a fair trial with sensational coverage that included publishing his recent photo on the front page. Critics said that Mr Murdoch subverted due process and helped send a possibly innocent man to the gallows. But the Herald's big boss answers to no one. He has an empire to build. Now, at 5.30am in Omeo, the iron bar of the lockup is opened by the helpful Constable McMillan. He and Detective Sergeant Malfay even make sure they're out of shot. Scoop secured, Ronald Griggs is bundled into a motor car. Then... Under the guard of Detective Sergeant Malfay, he's driven south to sail. But they're not going anywhere near as fast as the Herald photographer. 
He's rushing at breakneck speed along the winding road southwest to deliver his precious negatives to the Herald and Weekly Times headquarters. This news hound arrives at the newly completed edifice at Flinders Street, dubbed the Colin Ross Memorial by Keith Murdoch's critics, after covering 256 miles in 7 hours and 15 minutes. About an hour later, a photo of Ronald Griggs is on the front page above the fold as copies of the Herald fly out of the hands of the city's newsboys and are shipped by truck and train across Victoria. Readers, many of them potential jurors, gaze upon just how Ronald Griggs looked earlier that morning. This disgraced Methodist minister looks away from the camera, his narrow face grim beneath his hat, his hands deep in the pockets of his overcoat. Framed in the doorway of his log cabin cell, the confirmed adulterer and accused wife killer can't help but look, well, as guilty as hell. I'm Michael Adams and this is part four of the Forgotten Australian miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. On that Friday and in updates over the weekend, the Herald gave readers what reporters had so far learned about Ronald Griggs's Tasmanian upbringing and education, his military and his Methodist service. The paper revealed that baby Alwyn had had her first birthday on the same day that her father was arrested for her mother's murder. The little girl was now being cared for in Franklin by Ronald's mother and father. These decent, devout Methodist people were in shock at what their son had admitted to, but didn't believe he'd committed the far more heinous crime of which he stood accused. Yet, this was far from a frivolous prosecution. Detective Sergeant Mulfay hadn't rushed the investigation. In travels that took two weeks and covered 2,000 miles, he'd interrogated Ronald four times and had interviewed more than 20 witnesses who would next testify at the coronial inquest. That would also hear the scientific evidence of arsenic poison obtained via the exhumation of Ethel Griggs. With Ronald Griggs lodged in a cell in Sale Prison, Omeo could at least get back to some sort of normalcy. For the past two weeks, the Methodist church bell had remained silent. It tolled again on Sunday the 5th of February, with a reverend named Betharus to serve until a new minister could be officially appointed. Reverend Betharus's sermon that day included reflection on Revelations 2 verse 1, in which Jesus praised the church at Ephesus for its endurance. Quote, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. It sounded vengeful, but the following verses have Jesus exhorting this church to reject rote religiosity and return to their original values. Reverend Betharus was saying that this was a time for reflection, not retribution. Piety, though, wasn't what Truth Newspaper was preaching that weekend. The Perth edition's headline had to be the most lurid of the lot. Quote, Methodist Parsons' outrageous fall, carrying on with an attractive female member of the congregation while his wife is away. He denies his sin before his maker and buries his wife with a lie on his lips. Truth readers across Australia learned that Lottie would stay with her family friends the Paynes near the parsonage and secretly visit Ronald's bed in the dead of night before returning to her own room. She and Ronald had believed that they were getting away with it. Quote, 
but there were eyes that saw, and soon many scandalous tongues wagged, and the amours of the parson became the subject of coarse jests on the street corners and in hotel bars. Truth also had the story of the road worker seeing Ronald and Lottie out for their romantic ride. Quote, On came the lovers, reins entwined their horses, and knees touching, and arms around each other's waists, they kissed as they rode. A few days later, Omeo knew of it, for even roadmenders love gossip, and a story such as his could be sure of an audience. While Truth reveled in recounting sinful ways, it also revered the saintly and the righteous. So John Condon became the star of their stories. It's unclear exactly when he became aware that Ronald had lied about his relationship with Lottie. But John told Truth, quote, What I have done for Ronald Griggs is what I would have done for any other man. I accepted his word when he tried to make me believe there was nothing wrong between him and my daughter Lottie. I was shocked beyond measure when I found that he had lied to me. John wanted to make it clear that he had not known, much less given his consent. He also wanted to set the record straight now to say that Ronald had most recently stayed at his house because the police had feared for his safety if he stayed in Omeo, and so they'd requested that John give Ronald safe haven. John continued, quote, He has brought disgrace upon me and upon my family. I feel at times I cannot bear up under the burden of it. How can I face people again? I feel that I don't want to face them, that I don't want to go outside my gate. My life is ruined. Yet here, in the pages of truth, was proof of true Christian charity. John said, quote, I took his word as a minister of God, as a man, and in return I gave him my word that I would stand by him despite what people have said. I have never broken my word to any man, and I could not break it because Griggs let me down. He went on, My own opinion is that he is not guilty. I honestly believe he has been judged harshly by people who should have known better. Astoundingly, the aptly initialed John Condon said he would offer Ronald Griggs's parents a loan to fund their son's defence. But even John Condon had his limits vowing he'd never give consent to Lottie marrying Ronald while she was still a minor, and if she married the man after that, it would be without his blessing. In his jail cell down in Sale, Ronald passed remand by losing himself in a book about Gallipoli and lightened his spirits with Mark Twain's writings. Ronald was also buoyed by visits from Reverend Henry Nucky, his old friend and mentor from those innocent days of the Franklin Methodist Guild. Reverend Nucky had most recently been Sales Minister, and despite everything he learned, including reports from Gippsland elders, he'd be a staunch spiritual ally in the times ahead. That was surely of comfort to Ronald, though perhaps not as much as also having two formidable legal minds now in his earthly corner. His solicitor was George Wise. Then 74, there might not have been a more respected figure in Gippsland. He'd been elected to Sales Council in 1880 and served for a quarter of a century and had been its mayor six times. George Wise had then been federal member for Gippsland for all but one year from 1906 till 1922, serving as Billy Hughes Postmaster General towards the end of his political career. After federal politics, he'd gone back to the law. Meanwhile, Ronald's barrister was an even more formidable lawyer-politician, 68-year-old George Maxwell. This Scottish-born son of a Presbyterian parson had also been a church minister himself. 
For the past 10 years, he'd been a federal member of parliament, but it was George Maxwell's legal mind that his fellows most admired. Sir Robert Menzies was to call him, quote, the greatest criminal advocate I ever heard. Even so, George Maxwell didn't win them all. His most famous client, Colin Campbell Ross, a victim of Charles Anthony Taylor's mistake with that forensic hair evidence and Keith Murdoch's determination to see him swing, had been hanged in April 1922. The other distinctive thing about George Maxwell was that he'd become increasingly blind from the early 1920s. By the time he took Ronald Griggs as a client, he couldn't see at all. Yet that hadn't lessened his power in court. If anything, it made juries more attentive to his passionate, persuasive speeches delivered in his powerful Scottish brogue. George's Wise and Maxwell had decades of court experience behind them, and they knew the Omeo coronial inquest was a place to keep their powder dry. On the morning of Tuesday the 28th of February, Omeo was packed with townsfolk and tourists who'd timed their alpine holidays to coincide with the coronial inquest. The Age newspaper described the scene, quote, A large crowd of men clambered at the closed door to the small courtroom sometime before 9am. There were knots of curious people on the roadway, intent on catching a glimpse of Ronald Jeeves Griggs crossing from the jail to the court. Even schoolchildren clambered on the fence opposite. Ronald had been brought up from sale to Brothen yesterday on the train, with crowds of the curious gathering around his compartment at every stop. Then, he'd been driven to Omeo after dark and placed back in that log cabin lockup. In court, he wore a black suit, white stiff collar and coloured tie. Eye-catchingly, on the lapel of his coat, he wore his returned soldier's badge. This display was to incense the returned sailors and soldiers Imperial League Australia, the forerunner of the RSL. In Ronald Griggs' military file in the National Archives of Australia, there's correspondence in which this organisation asked the army for any evidence of his military misconduct so that his membership could be suspended or cancelled. The army responded by saying that Ronald's records were confidential, but it assured the League that there was nothing in them to suggest he was anything but of good character. Ronald had a supporter at his side in Omeo Court, and this was his successor, Reverend Betherus but the accused also knew another Methodist minister who was present. This was Mr. Frederick W. Bond, Bansdale's presiding magistrate and district coroner, who was also a Methodist preacher who'd even occasionally taken the pulpit at Omeo. Was this a conflict of interest? Neither the Crown nor the defence seemed to mind, and this was perhaps because the outcome of this inquest was in little doubt. Opening for the Crown, Prosecutor Llewellyn Jones, instructed by his boss Frank Menzies, set out how Ronald and Ethel had married in April 1926 and come to Omeo, with him becoming increasingly involved with Lottie, much to his wife's suspicion and dismay. Ethel had gone to Tasmania, Ronald had continued his affair with Lottie, and even discussed marrying her. Immediately upon Ethel's return to the parsonage, he'd made her refreshments and she'd become sick and died a little over 48 hours later. Llewellyn Jones told of the suspicious phone call Lottie had made to Ronald, of Ronald telling police he'd bought strychnine and prussic acid and admitting he'd been in John Condon's woodshed and blacksmith shop where arsenic had been kept. He'd also stayed at farmer Henry Harmon's place where there was another supply of arsenic. Giving evidence, Detective Sergeant Malfay detailed his interview with Lottie Condon and then read Ronald Griggs' statement. 
the court heard how the accused had described his wife's jealousy and claimed she'd once threatened to hang herself. In July 1927, she and the baby had gone to Tasmania. Ronald had stated she'd come back on New Year's Eve, and in his statement given, his version of how his wife had sickened and died, despite his best efforts and those of Dr. Matthew and Mrs. Mitchell. The court heard that Ronald had admitted that Lottie Condon's statement was true, and that he'd then given details of their adultery. Detective Sergeant Malfay told of the interview in which Ronald Griggs had said, quote, I know now that my wife must have taken poison, and that he'd also said, quote, I admit the death of my wife looks suspicious, but I have in no way been the cause of it. More damagingly, Detective Sergeant Malfay testified that Ronald had said of his adultery confession, I would not have told you that if the girl had not done so. Now Detective Sergeant Malfay read Lottie Condon's statement about their infidelity and how Ronald had told her he and Ethel could not live together and she was only coming back to Omeo to gather her things. Next, the court heard from government analyst Charles Taylor, who gave evidence of finding 15.5 grains of arsenic in Ethel's organs. He said there was no trace of the poison in the chemist's medicine. No strychnine had been found in her remains, and the bottle of that poison taken from the parsonage hadn't been used. Bizarrely, the other bottle, the one labelled Blood of Peaches, was found to contain three ounces of urine, though this wouldn't be explained or pursued by the prosecution or the defence. Government pathologist Dr Mollison said he was of the opinion that because a large amount of arsenic had been found in her stomach and a similar amount in the large intestine, more than one dose of the poison had been taken, with the arsenic in her stomach swallowed just a few hours before she died. Dr Matthew testified about attending to Ethel and that she'd said she'd had a bad trip from Tasmania and he formed the opinion that that was what had upset her. The last time he'd seen her, she'd been exhausted but unable to sleep, so he'd given her a morphia injection. He denied that this could have killed her, the amount he gave her being one-sixth of a grain, the usual dose being anywhere from one-eighth to one-half of a grain. Dr Matthew testified that Ronald had told him Ethel was prone to hysteria and that just after the baby was born, she'd been walking down the street in the rain, threatening to throw herself in the river. The doctor said he'd initially believed death had been due to heart failure caused by excessive vomiting. This conclusion arrived at because of the presence of goiter. Dr. Matthew said Ethel had given no indication of being suicidal. Dr. Charles Langdon, for whom Dr. Matthew had been filling in, said he'd known Mrs. Griggs and had attended her professionally on several occasions, including seeing her after she became hysterical because of her suspicions about Ronald and Lottie. Ethel had said to him that she was jealous, also saying at that point that she knew there was no real reason to be. Dr Langdon testified that in his opinion, Mrs Griggs was not of robust constitution. Omeo's grizzled old chemist Francis Perry described preparing the powder and liquid medicine that Dr Matthew had prescribed for Ethel after Ronald saw him on Sunday. Francis Perry also told the court what he'd told the police when questioned in the lead up to Ronald's arrest. About 18 months ago, Ronald twice came to the chemist shop to ask about chemicals that might be used in a saying because he'd found a piece of gold-bearing quartz. Francis Perry recalled Ronald had asked about arsenic and cyanide, but he'd left empty-handed. Ronald's solicitor George Wise asked, Griggs told you he wanted all the acids for a saying? Francis Perry answered, quote, He was reluctant to tell me anything. 
That is why I refused to supply them. George Wise's cross-examination tried to imply that the chemist had only remembered this detail after being interviewed by Constable McMillan. As we'll hear, this was but the start of the defence's attempts not only to discredit Francis Perry, but to pin Ethel's death on him. With her face veiled, Lottie had come to Omeo with her father and a sister, arriving via a backway in a car with curtains drawn. They drove into the police yard and were taken to a special room. Before it was time for her to appear, scouts were sent out to ensure the coast was clear. Then Lottie and her sister ran to the courthouse via a back path and holed up in the coroner's room. Lottie was called and, as the Herald would report, quote, a tall, thin, dark girl, looking composed but pale, entered the court. This was the moment the press and the public had been waiting for. But they were bitterly disappointed when the coroner granted Mr. Wise's request that the court be cleared while Lottie's evidence was taken. She testified for 90 minutes. What Lottie said didn't appear to have varied from her statement. If it had, it would have been referred to in later court proceedings. John Condon testified next, saying Ronald had the run of his house on the occasions he'd stayed. John told of keeping a large amount of arsenic in the woodshed and the blacksmith shop. Ronald, he said, had spent time in the woolshed with Lottie, and he'd used the blacksmith shop to repair his motorbike, most recently in December. John said that on the day of Ronald's arrest, he'd taken Detective Sergeant Mulfay to look at the case in the blacksmith shop that contained the arsenic. John said, quote, it was nailed down and did not look as if it had been opened. The last time I opened it was five years ago. There was a drum of arsenic on a shelf nine feet high in the woolshed, and I also had a bottle of arsenate lead in the storeroom. He continued, quote, The drum in the woodshed had not been used for 15 years. Farmer Henry Harmon testified that he kept arsenic in a billy can in the wash house, and that Ronald had stayed with Lottie at his place in December 1926 and January 1927. Court was adjourned just before 4pm. But there was no rest for the newspaper reporters and the telegraph operators. A special telegraph station had been set up in the office of an Omeo motor garage so that operators could punch out reporter stories and flash them to all parts of Australia. These workers would send some 50,000 words that would appear in newspapers that evening and the following morning. During the first day of the inquest, Ronald Griggs had appeared fairly impassive. Not so at the start of the second day, when the first witness was Ethel's mother. Mrs. Annie White was dressed in black and she spoke in low, trembling tones as she told of her daughter's visit to Tasmania. Despite Ethel not being in the best of health to begin with, she'd gotten better during her stay and her spirits were bright and she was not in any way suicidal. Mrs. White told of how Ethel had told her before leaving for Omeo that she and Ronald would probably go to the islands as missionaries in April and as such she, Mrs. White, might have to look after their baby Alwyn. Quote, she told me she was glad to be going home and was in good spirits and looked really well. She promised to write to me so soon as she returned home. The next I heard was on January 3rd when the Reverend Harris of Sheffield called on me and informed me of my daughter's death and showed me the telegram from Griggs. Ronald Griggs's subsequent hypocritical letters to Mrs. White were read in full to the court. He found these hard to listen to, burying his face in his hands. Mr. Wise cross-examined Mrs. White to confirm that she at no time had known there were any troubles between her daughter and Ronald. 
and he was sown another seed of the defence's argument that would flower in later proceedings. Next, Edna White testified about what her sister Ethel had said of Ronald keeping company with Lottie. Edna told of the kitchen incident, how he'd ordered her to apologise and then sent her to bed and kicked her as she went. Edna said Ethel had hoped Ronald might be weaned off Lottie and that in any case in April, they'd be moving from Omeo. Edna said that Ethel had never said anything about suicide. Lynn Fleming, stewardess on the boat that had brought Ethel over from Tasmania, said she had only been slightly seasick and hadn't been forced to keep to her cabin. By morning, she'd been fine, happy and playing with baby Alwyn. The driver and three passengers said that Ethel hadn't been sick in the motor car up to Omeo. One passenger testified he'd talked with her in the vehicle and she'd said she'd had a very good trip across from Tasmania and that she and her husband wouldn't be staying in Omeo long because he was being moved. The Griggs neighbour, Annie Mitchell, testified about trying to help Ethel on the Monday before she died. Ethel had said to her, quote, Why should I be so ill, Mrs Mitchell, when I have been so well? Mrs Mitchell testified that Ethel had told her she'd been a bit sick on the boat from Tasmania, but after that had been fine until Ronald gave her those light refreshments. After Ethel died, Mrs Mitchell said Ronald had to be talked out of riding down to the Condon property. Mrs Mitchell testified, I knew Mrs Griggs well, and she never showed any signs of wanting to take her own life. Herbert Mitchell told of the incident between Ronald and Ethel over Lottie in his store. He explained how Ronald had summoned him to help determine if she was dead. Ronald had then made that claim that Dr Matthew had administered an overdose and also had said he wanted to go and see the Condons. Hilltop Hotel licensee Mary Shanahan told of hearing Ronald's side of that suspicious-sounding conversation with Lottie on the pub's phone. The Crown's evidence concluded around 3pm with Constable McMillan, who capped things by corroborating the evidence given by Detective Sergeant Mulfay. For the defence, Mr Wise said that Ronald was, on his advice, not giving evidence. The solicitor argued that the inquest had been nothing more than a prosecution of his client based on flimsy circumstantial evidence and statements that had been obtained by the police subjecting Ronald and Lottie to the third degree. Mr Wise told the court there was no evidence Ronald had arsenic in his possession, much less that he'd poisoned his wife. Further, after Ethel had become sick, his actions were those of a concerned husband, not those of a scheming murderer. The coroner, Mr Bond, said that he had no doubt Ethel Griggs had died of heart failure caused by arsenic poisoning. He said there were only two explanations, suicide or murder. Quote, On the evidence placed before me, the first of these alternatives is so very remote that I have to pass it by. I am then in the position of finding the only other alternative. Mr Bond found Ronald Jeeves Griggs guilty of the willful murder of his wife and ordered he stand trial at the Supreme Court at sale on the 7th of March. Often in such cases, the wheels of justice move pretty slowly. Not so here, with the accused to stand in the shadow of the gallows within five weeks of being arrested. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Omeo had been the dress rehearsal. Now, 
the real show would open in sale, and a bumper audience was expected. Smith's Weekly would describe the lead-up to the trial in these terms, quote, Folk flocked to the station to watch the train disgorge the actors. Judge, associate, tip staff, barristers, detectives, witnesses, shorthand writers, newspaper reporters, who, as they file through the gaping, nudging crowd, irresistibly suggest a travelling troupe. But the leading man and his leading lady weren't so easy to see. In the days before the trial, Looky Loos couldn't spy Ronald Griggs because he was in his cell in Sales Jail. Yet, courtesy of Truth Newspaper's sensational reporting, readers got a taste of what life was like for the accused. One big feature article said that every human hand was against Ronald, his only bedfellows, remembrance and remorse, as he cried bitter tears in his cell, as alone in this living death, as if buried beneath the keep of a feudal castle. Truth said there was no romantic note to Ronald Griggs and expressed amazement that he should have wooed and bedded Lottie Condon. Quote, A less inspiring figure as the central pivot of a love drama would be difficult to conceive. He has about him the body and soul of insignificance, puny of stature, pale of face, with thinning hair that in the past fortnight has become streaked with grey. But it is in the voice of the man galvanic nervousness with which his mouth twitches when he speaks, that personal antipathy is borne upon everyone who speaks with him or hears him speak. It was enough to make you wonder how he'd been a preacher for the past five years. All blame for this scandalous affair lay with him, with Lottie cast as a, quote, simple country girl whose infatuation for him has whirled her out of the seclusion of a quiet rural home and placed her on a pedestal of ignominy under the merciless glare of nationwide publicity. That was pretty rich coming from truth, which was the leading light of this merciless glare of nationwide publicity. Their reporting had helped create an atmosphere in which Lottie was a shameful celebrity. So when it became known that she was staying at the Criterion Hotel in Sale with her father, people gathered outside in the hope of getting a glimpse. Wednesday the 7th of March 1928 dawned hot and from first light the streets of Sale around the courthouse were crowded with many hopeful spectators queuing up for court seats. Ronald Griggs was to walk from Sales Prison to the courthouse, Truth watching him coming up the road, quote, a tiny bantam-like creature between two bluff waters. He gave no indication of seeing the crowd who was staring at him in silence. Lottie and her father, meanwhile, managed to give the press and the public the slip and get to court unseen, though later, when she was seen on the street during a lunchtime adjournment, Truth would say the crowd got its chance to heap insults and abuse on her. The trial of Ronald Griggs was to be presided over by Chief Justice William Irvine, former Victorian Premier and Federal Attorney General who was then 69 years old. That made him younger at least than the Crown Prosecutor, 71-year-old John Gurner. This King's Counsel described by Sydney's Daily Telegraph as, quote, suave-mannered, round-faced, with a rather Dickensian cast of features. Add in 74-year-old Defence Solicitor George Wise and 68-year-old Defence Barrister George Maxwell, and you had a courtroom of such old men that even contemporary newspaper reports made something of it. 
As it had been nearly 40 years before women could serve on juries in Victoria, Ronald's fate would also rest in the hands of 12 men who were middle-aged or older. We know this because Truth told readers the Crown had rejected any young potential jurors. We also know this because despite Keith Murdoch coming in for criticism for doing exactly this in the 1922 Colin Ross trial, the Truth newspaper chain published the names of the jury members, their hometowns and occupations, their religious affiliations and what was known about how often some of them went to church. The jury members' potted biographies included odd titbits, including that one was a district champion golfer, Another liked to wear kilts, and a third had a father whose claim to fame was making feather baskets for the Prince of Wales. In an attempt to keep them from undue influence, whether the murmurs of the crowd outside or reports in the newspapers, the jury members would stay at Sales Star Hotel. There, they'd eat breakfast and dinners in a private dining room and sleep in 12 beds on the balcony guarded and watched by a constable and a court officer who'd protect them from any press or public interference and also ensure that the jury members didn't discuss the case. At 9.30, with witnesses sitting in the corridor, the court crowded with reporters from all over Australia and as many as a thousand people now milling outside in the street, the accused was brought to the dock to stand before Justice Irvine in his wig and scarlet robe. The court crier called, Ronald Jeeves Griggs, you are charged that at Omeo between December 31, 1927 and January 2, 1928, you did willfully murder your wife, Ethel Constance Griggs. How do you plead? Arms folded, voice firm and clear, Ronald said, not guilty. But if he was found guilty, he'd automatically receive the death sentence and Ronald couldn't be sure that the government would commute that to life behind bars. Despite there being serious questions about some of the testimony against him and the prejudicial press coverage, Colin Ross had been hanged in 1922 for the murder of young Alma Turchke. Angus Murray, Squizzy Taylor's minion, who'd often tangled with Detective Sergeant Mulfay, had swung two years later for merely being an accomplice in the shooting murder of a bank manager at Glenferry. Granted, those executions had been carried out under a nationalist state government, and with Labour in power since last year, Ronald stood a greater chance of seeing his sentence commuted. But a Methodist preacher, convicted of cold-bloodedly poisoning his wife so he could marry his mistress, there'd be a lot of people clamouring for the noose to be fitted around his neck. Yet, this might also work in his favour. That was because juries were less likely to convict in capital cases. Better that a guilty man should go free than an innocent one hang. Opening for the prosecution, Mr. Gurner said Ethel Griggs' death was clearly suicide or murder. Ethel had had no reason to do away with herself. She'd been happy and well on her visit to Tasmania and on the journey home. There was no evidence she'd obtained arsenic and no receptacle was found at the parsonage that had contained this poison. Ronald Griggs, though, had motive, means and opportunity. Mr. Gurner outlined these before Defence Counsel Mr. Maxwell said they didn't amount to anything like proof. The court was to hear the same evidence from the same Crown witnesses as at the inquest. Now though, Mr. Maxwell's cross-examination and his speeches tried to get seeds of reasonable doubt to bloom in the minds of the jury. 
he endeavoured to show that Ronald's behaviour had not been consistent with that of a murderer. He showed that the Crown had no proof at all Ronald had ever had arsenic in his possession or used it to poison his wife. Mr Maxwell would show that Ethel had motive to commit suicide. He'd also raise another possibility, that Ethel had died accidentally. Under cross-examination, Detective Sergeant Mulfay agreed that Ronald Griggs had, after those initial denials relating to his wife and Lottie, answered all questions candidly and consistently. When homeochemist Francis Perry took the stand, Mr Maxwell tried to get him to admit he might have made a mistake with the prescriptions and somehow put arsenic in the powder sachets because, well, he'd had too much to drink the night before, which had been New Year's Eve. Mr Perry was a bit contradictory, but he couldn't be cowed. He didn't drink very much, had never mixed up prescriptions in his 50 years of service, and his poisons were stored in a different part of the pharmacy under lock and key, so such an error was impossible. During lengthy cross-examination, Mr Maxwell cast the government pathologist Dr Crawford Mollison's conclusion that Ethel had been killed by two or more doses of arsenic as being nothing more than a theory. He put it to Dr. Mollison that there had been cases where people had taken far larger doses and died between 50 hours and 7 days later. Dr. Mollison said this was so. The reasonable doubt here was that Ethel could have self-administered or been dosed days before even reaching Omeo and that the arsenic found in her body had moved through her digestive system at different rates because gastric processes varied from individual to individual. Dr. Mollison testified as to how Ethel might have taken the arsenic in a cup of hot tea, or less likely in soda or still water. Here, Mr. Maxwell reminded the jury Dr. Matthew had testified Ethel could only take spoonfuls of fluid by Sunday night, yet they just heard from Dr. Mollison that the supposed second big dose of arsenic would have to have been dissolved in something like a full cup of fluid. John Condon testified about Ronald's access to his property and his arsenic, saying again that he didn't believe it had been touched in years. Farmer Henry Harmon said he didn't think that Ronald knew where he kept his arsenic in the wash house. The second day of the trial began with Ethel's mother Annie, followed again by her sister Edna. Mr Maxwell's cross-examination focused on the mother, and here he was effective in casting her story in a different light. If Ethel hadn't told her about the troubles with Ronald, might she also have successfully hidden her suicidal inclinations? As for the stewardess, motor car driver and passengers, how would they really have known if Ethel, a stranger to them, was putting on a brave face that masked her deep despair? Continuing in this vein, Mr Maxwell tried to show in his cross-examination of neighbour Mrs Mitchell that the paddock incident was further proof of Ethel's ongoing psychic distress. The court heard from the Shanahans about Lottie's phone call to Ronald at their hotel. Mr Maxwell argued that even the Crown knew that, in context, being about Ronald, his mother and the baby visiting the Condon farm, this conversation sounded far less sinister. Spectators in court had hoped for the big moment when Lottie Condon would be called. But Crown Prosecutor Mr Gurner disappointed them, saying there was no point because Ronald Griggs had admitted in his statement everything that Lottie would say in evidence. As a consolation, there was a bombshell moment when His Honour asked the defence, 
do you propose to adduce evidence, Mr. Maxwell? And he replied, we propose to call the accused. Having Ronald testify was a huge gamble. Should he falter in his story under cross-examination or even come across badly to the jury, he might be putting the noose around his own neck. Yet, if he could convert those he preached to now, maybe he'd walk free. For the next two and a half hours, Ronald's life was in his own hands as he told his story. He admitted trouble had begun after his wife saw him with Lottie in the kitchen. But he said what the jury had heard from Edna White about him kicking Ethel from the room was absolutely untrue. The incident in Mr. Mitchell's store had happened as described, and now the jury heard from Ronald's own lips that that night Ethel had tried to throw herself in the fire in the bedroom, and that the next day she'd asked whether the rope in the shed would hang her. He told the court of the July showdown at the Condons when Ethel had yelled at him loudly for being outside with Lottie and claimed that Mrs. Condon reckoned him unfit to be a minister. Quote, The following day I spoke to the Condons about my wife's statements and they denied them. It had been the day after that at the parsonage that Ethel said she wanted a divorce on the grounds of his misconduct and he said she should go to Tasmania and they could reassess after six months. Ronald told the court that she'd replied she'd lost all love for him and would never live with him again. Ronald claimed his misconduct with Lottie hadn't actually started until the end of January 1927 and then had occurred occasionally for the next three months. This didn't square with what Lottie had said of them starting in December, and even Justice Irvine said this chronology didn't make sense because from the end of January and for the next three months, Lottie had been in Wagga Wagga and in Melbourne. Ronald told the court his version of Ethel's return, her illness and death. One of the details he gave was that Ethel having already once been sick and now feeling sick again after sipping her tea, poured a bit of that tea into a saucer for the baby. This claim was striking, not least that an 11-month-old baby would want to drink tea from a saucer, but it didn't become a focus for the prosecution or the defence. I'm guessing this is because it wouldn't serve either cause. If the Crown had harped on it, it'd only make the jury ask whether Ronald could have been so callous as to let his baby drink tea that he'd poisoned. Yet, if the defence had tried to make this argument, it would only come off to the jury as an unlikely invention that had been contrived to make the accused seem innocent. Continuing his testimony, Ronald confirmed that Ethel had, on Monday afternoon at 4pm, said to him, quote, "'Give me no more of that medicine, Ronnie.'" He agreed that he'd told the police on the 19th of January that he believed his wife had taken poison because she'd died so suddenly and that she had known where he kept the strychnine. But in Ronald's version, he'd made this statement in response to suggestions made by Detective Sergeant Malfay. As for Ethel taking the arsenic herself, Ronald admitted that in the hours leading up to her death and in the hours after, he hadn't found a bottle, vessel or paper that could have contained the poison. He said they'd had no argument on her return from Tasmania, nor had she said anything about suicide. Ronald denied knowing where arsenic had been stored on the properties of John Condon and Henry Harmon. He denied having asked Francis Perry for arsenic or cyanide, and he denied poisoning his wife. 
During cross-examination, Ronald faltered a little when he was forced to admit that he'd lied about his relationship with his wife and with Lottie Condon to Detective Sergeant Malfay and Constable McMillan in that first interview. He said he'd done it to protect Lottie. Mr. Gurner read his letter to Constable McMillan asking for an inquiry. Quote, you wrote that letter courting inquiry and were so candid that the first thing you did was to tell the police a lot of lies. Ronald said that in November 1927, Lottie had said to him, quote, When Mrs. Griggs comes back, I will have to go away because I cannot see you going about together. He'd told her, quote, Lottie, Mrs. Griggs, when she comes back, is not going to stay. That is definite. After three years, we will be able to get a divorce and then we can be married. Ronald told the court, not at all convincingly, that he'd said this because he believed that after three years' separation, a divorce could be granted to either party on the grounds of desertion. Pushed about this, he said he didn't know that much about the law. Mr. Gurn attested the claim that on the 3rd of January 1927, Ethel had tried to throw herself into the fire. Quote, do you always have a fire in your room in the middle of summer? Ronald, yes, the nights are always cold in Omeo. Questioning him about his decision to go to the islands, Ronald said he'd resigned from the Foreign Mission Service in November of 1926 and that Ethel had known this. If that was true, the jury had to wonder, then why had she told her people that this was their likely plan for 1928? Going on the offensive, Mr. Gurner tried to conjure for the jury a scene in the parsonage where Ethel was recovering from the first dose of arsenic, only for Ronald to give her more. Quote, Your wife got better, Griggs, on the Sunday afternoon? Ronald, yes. Mr. Gurner, yes. And as a matter of fact, on the Sunday and Monday, when you were out of the way, her health improved. Yes. Mr. Gurner elicited from Ronald that he wanted a lifetime career as a minister and that he knew that Ethel divorcing him would mean an end to that. Ronald also admitted he'd met Lottie the night before Ethel returned. Mr. Gurner's voice got louder and he glared at Ronald as he said, Now, I'm going to suggest something to you. Did you get arsenic from her? Ronald snapped, No, certainly not. Mr. Gurner read Lottie's entire statement about their adultery, and excruciatingly, he stopped after every sentence to ask Ronald if what the court had just heard was true. Then Mr. Gurner said, You have been very intimate with Lottie Condon, and you have committed adultery with her. You must be very fond of her. Ronald, Yes, I'm very fond of her. Infatuated, eh? Yes, quite. Mr. Gurner, you say that Lottie Condon went away for two months to Wagga, where you visited her. Ronald, yes. Was there any intercourse there? No. What? After you'd travelled all that way to see her? No. Mr. Gurner, now I am going to suggest to you that Lottie Condon went away from Omeo because she was pregnant. Heatedly, Ronald said, no, nothing of the sort. Mr. Maxwell had his junior in the case, John Cullity, re-examine Ronald Reed these suggestions, giving him the chance to deny again that Lottie had given him arsenic and that she'd been pregnant to him. Mr. Cullity sat down, but Mr. Gurner wasn't done. He stood and said to the accused, Do you know whether Lottie Condon is here? Ronald replied, No, I do not. Mr. Gurner, Well, 
She is. Call Lottie Condon. This was a bombshell to all, not least Lottie, who'd been told she wasn't to be called. Truth described the moment she came into the court, quote, a shrinking figure with downcast eyes, bowed head and dejected mien, whose gaze slowly lifted and rested on the crimson-robed judge and then moved across and, for a second, took in the man in the witness box. With a convulsive movement of his hands, he gripped the witness box and went deathly pale. Mr. Gurner asked him, Do you know who that is? Ronald turned, looked at his love and whispered, Yes. That was it, and Lottie was ushered from the court. Calling her had done nothing to advance the Crown's case. Perhaps the prosecution had hoped that Lottie or Ronald would crack when faced with each other and would do or say something damaging. More likely, though, Mr. Gurner just wanted to put a face to Lottie's name in the minds of the jurymen and close the evidence with a bang. That mission accomplished, court was adjourned. Closing arguments would be heard tomorrow, the judge would sum up, and then the fate of Ronald Jeeves Griggs would be decided by the jury. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part four of the five-part miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. The fifth and final episode is coming up soon. But if you can't wait for that finale, and you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can hear it now by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters get early ad-free access to all episodes of Forgotten Australia and they get a shout-out in the show. Additionally, supporters get exclusive bonus episodes available nowhere else and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart, my biography of our tragic forgotten film star, Mary Maguire. So, to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia and this link is also available in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and the Darug people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.